When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between decades for movies the 1980s i'm your host bill banton along with me on this ride through the 80s is my co-host jason masick hello jason bill the name's jason t masick t what does the t stand for trustworthy that's right today's movie is 1984's action comedy romancing the stone starring michael douglas kathleen turner and danny devito directed by robert zavekis this movie is rated PG with a running time of one hour and 46 minutes. The movie was nominated for one Oscar for Best Film Editing. How are you, Bill Bat? I, I didn't actually get to say hi. And, and like, how are you? I just want to check in real quick, man. How, how are you this week? I am doing very well. Thank you, Jason. How are things on good. your end? Very good. After rewatching this film, very good. I, I, I'm, a, you know, I left the film on a high note. It's just, you know, a fun romp through the jungle. I'm in a good mood now. Excellent. Speaking of our film, let's let the people know what the film's about. Uh, so we're going to our first segment. So what's on the box? So if you were uh, growing up in the 80s, uh, you went to your local video store, mom and pop video store, peruse through the aisles there and pick up the uh, VHS boxes, look on the back and see what it was all about. And here's our little description for Mancing the Stone. Take it away, Jason. Get ready for the ultimate ride into the heart of adventure. Romance novelist Joan Wilder lives for and in a fantasy world. But when her sister is kidnapped in Colombia and the only chance to save her is to bring a treasure map to her captors, reality quickly becomes stranger than fiction. Thrown into a jungle full of gunfire, mudslides, and poisonous snakes, Joan's only hope lies with Jack Colton, a rugged wanderer straight out of her novels. Together, they'll have to outwit the bandits and survive the jungle if they're to save her sister and find the secret of El Corazon romancing the stone romancing the stone yeah so let's give this uh the grade description um what would you grade it jason you know what i'm giving it an a minus because i enjoyed it i think it does cover the bases but it is cheesy and but i'm giving it props for being cheesy because i think that kind of falls in line with the lightheartedness of this film does that make sense Yes, it does. I think it. I think it's appropriate for this type of genre, the action romance comedy. Okay, I'm, I'm almost on the same page. I'm giving it a B plus. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think the description of the Jack T. Colton character could be a little bit better because he's not really a wonder. He's he's down there in Columbia for a reason, not just someone she just came across. That kind of thing. So I wish they made him a little more stronger. But B plus, A minus is pretty good. It's good grade. It's good grade. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And we'll get into the character of Jack Colton because I would love to hear exactly why you think he is down there because. I, I still am not quite sure. I think we're supposed to not be sure. I think he's supposed to be a, obviously a bit of a mysterious hero. And we, we have some ideas of what he was doing at present when they encounter one another. But he is, you know, and I've heard him described in other research as a, a soldier of fortune, which I always, always like that description. But we'll get we'll break it down a little bit. OK, so first thing, earliest memory. What is your earliest memory of this film? You know, my, one of my earliest memories, I think, is especially when I look at the poster, is that I really wanted it to be like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Obviously, I was a big fan. You know, Raiders came out in, what, 81? And this is 84, so three years later. I was a Raiders of the Lost Ark fan. Um, I had not seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom yet, which did come out the same year as this film. However, I was looking for that exciting action adventure and intrigue just something that really captured my imagination like raiders did so when i saw this film i think on one level i was a little bit let down because it obviously is not raiders lost ark it's more of a romantic comedy mixed in with the adventure now that being said i really enjoyed the concept and i remember this as a kid where if i were putting myself in the shoes of joan wilder romance novelist and wanted to live out the fantasies that I was writing and let's say had fallen asleep. And then this story unfolded. This is kind of what, as a child, how I envisioned this film, how I saw the movie, I actually thought that as the adventure plays out, it was all in her head. I thought it was make believe. And I love that as a kid. It really sparked my imagination. I was like, Oh, this is cool. This isn't real. This is just what she wants it to be. And in a way, she becomes the hero herself in the end and then would wake up. But then at the end of the film, obviously, Jack Colton comes, spoiler alert, comes back, and it's all real. And I thought that was kind of cool as a kid. It was like, oh, it wasn't a dream. That actually happened. Wow, she went on this crazy adventure in Colombia with this other hero and, it, you know, found the treasure. And it was everything, you know, they fulfilled this fantasy. So... It did inspire my imagination. I remember that. And then funny enough, lastly, last but not least, I remember as a kid, the gore from the end of the movie, Colonel uh, Zolo getting his hand bitten off by the alligator and the, the blood. And that was shocking as a kid because I'm figuring what I'm maybe 10, 11 years old when this comes out. And Bill... Uh, there seems to be a theme here, my friend. We're only on our second podcast, and this is another film where one of our main characters loses a hand in a horrific way. I don't know if this is going to be a running theme or what. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, we might have to pick something different for next week just to get away from <laughs> <laughs> hand removal. So uh, Empire Strikes Back is out. Right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't even think about that. Right. Yeah, I didn't even think about the the dream aspect of it, that none of that was real, even though she was a writer. That w- I mean, that would make sense. But yeah, I, d- I didn't think of that way. It's kind of funny because, yeah, looking back on this too, 
I don't really remember that much about it, like in the theaters or anything like that. But I do remember, you know, because growing up as a kid, we had uh, HBO, which home box office, and they would always release things that you gear out. I, I do remember watching this with my parents. And it was funny sure. back then because HBO wasn't 24 hours a day. It started at six o'clock. Yeah, we had you know VCRs back then, but we would actually watch the, the stuff live. I do remember the parents and I, and I remember my mom laughing out loud that first scene when you have the opening scene with the, the book, Joan Waters right in the end of the book, and then it cuts to right. her and she's crying. And I remember my mom laughing at that because she thought that was pretty funny. And then the other thing that sticks out too from that, besides the alligator biting the handoff scene, was my mom commenting with that one scene where we see Joan Wilder with Michael Douglas and they're by the Devil's Fork. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh my God, look how pretty she looks!" Right. And and I I didn't I didn't pick up on the on the transformation too because in in the beginning of the movie she looks so I don't even know what the word doubt like dowdy. Yeah, she's dressed out. She's also a bit homely. Right, exactly. She's so homely, and then by the end of the movie, you're like, "Whoa, that is one gorgeous woman." She makes a transformation. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she makes a big transformation um, among a lot of things. But yeah, I remember we watched it, and then I turned around to my parents. I'm like, "Should I record this next time it comes on? Because it's going to be a keeper." That's that's how much we enjoyed it. That's great. Yeah, uh, it is funny that she recognize that moment when Kathleen Turner does kind of make that turn and she becomes this this beautiful vision because I remember that happening when you and I rewatched this film last year and then now today when I rewatched it again it's almost jarring in a way it's kind of funny uh because the camera it cuts right to her after they've gotten out of the car the uh, a car chase has just ensued. They've gotten out and it's a beautiful, we see the beautiful flowers up on the hillside. It's a beautiful scenery and Jack Colton's lying down and then it cuts to her and her hair is just like flowing and she's picking the flowers. And I was like, what happened between her being in the car in this crazy car chase and all this hectic action happening? And then she steps out of the car and is like instantly supermodel, but it works. It's, it's part of that. It works as if it were right out of a fantasy romance novel, in a way. So it's fun. But it is very noticeable when it happens in that particular scene. Yeah. And I, and I think what's also fun about this movie, too, was for me, being, like I said, a, a teenager, it was really my first introduction to Kathleen Turner, really also yes. to Michael Douglas, because at, at that point, he wasn't really doing that much act well television acting streets of san francisco but that was before my time um so i had really so of the of the three main actors in there the one i knew the most was danny devito because of taxi so so it was kind of cool because you didn't really know who these actors were going into it so it wasn't that kind of stereotype feel or 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 whatever because like when you're a kid um you and i being big star wars fans if you saw mark hamill or harrison ford and something else in the back of your mind, you would think of their Star Wars characters. You wouldn't identify immediately with who they were on the screen. Whereas in this movie, I didn't know who Michael Douglas was, and I didn't know who Kathleen Turner was. So right away, to me, they were Joan Wilder and Jack T. Colton, and I was along for the ride. Good point. I agree. Later on, we'll, we'll, we'll delve a little deeper into the careers of both Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas. I'm fans of both, but yeah, I, I did not know either of them at all. And I thought they, their chemistry was great on screen. And 
I thought uh, Michael Douglas clearly plays the rogue very well, that roguish either wanderer or soldier of fortune. He's, you know, uh, so they, they're excellent in the movie. They, they pull it off bought it hook line and sinker so i got swept up in the adventure and romance of it yeah and i think one of the reasons why i wanted to do a, a podcast on this movie is when you think of 80s films this one doesn't get as mentioned as much as i think it should because right? i think it's a, mm. a really fun action film with uh some great comedy bits in it it's got the romance in it but I think when you think 80s movies, it's not one of the first ones that, that pop into your head, even though it was, it was successful, spawned a horrible sequel. I'm sure they're talking about remake about it somewhere down the line. I think it's one of those, like when you're talking about, you know, some old movies that people should watch from the 80s, this, this one doesn't get mentioned. Right. I really don't think it gets the credit it deserves. It's very close to a family film, you know, 10 and over kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of violence, uh, you know, drug use and stuff like that. Yeah, because there was definitely a couple of things that went over my head the first time around. Yeah. But then, yeah, watching it again, that's what I always love about the repeat viewing. You're like, oh, okay, now I know what that is. Now I know what they mean. So, right. But yeah, I, I think it's an underrated gem of the 80s um, that if you have not seen, uh, you should definitely go check it out. Yeah, I would definitely agree. It You said it, it's fun. And I don't mean that like in a, like a superfluous way. Like it's, it's fun in the best possible way. Like it, Save for, you know, a lot of the use of the word shit here and there. And there's a couple quotes that don't stand the test of time that I'll get into uh, later. But uh, in my Swiss cheese segment, I should say our Swiss cheese segment. But other than that, this film doesn't take itself too seriously. I'm totally along for the ride. I actually, you know, watching it wasn't going the entire time. Oh, this is ridiculous. This would never happen. It really was just fun. I'm just going with the flow. I'm not looking for holes necessarily or poking holes into it. It's like just an enjoyable 80s flick. There's just nothing uh, like, and I wasn't kidding. Like it it puts you in a good mood. It has a happy ending. And I actually laughed out loud at moments. It's a really nice, light, balanced blend of everything in it. And that, again, that genre of action romance comedy i can't think you know maybe it's missing today and that's why maybe it's a little bit more nostalgic for me you know going back to this i kind of miss it but anyway yeah I, I was thinking that too i was like yeah they really don't do this kind of movie now and i wish they would kind of bring this one back mm-hmm. but the one thing i want to ask you do you feel that it's the lost our clone because i kind of not at all yeah i don't either because i always think it's like i said in the opening it's what i wanted and what i was expecting but it is not it is not. I think, you know, there are similarities, no doubt, in the adventure aspect of it and looking for a, a treasure, an artifact of some kind, maybe. But you, the female lead, it, Kathleen Turner, is very strong in this, actually. And she really shares the screen, if not at times steals scenes from Michael Douglas. In this. And I think that's done purposefully. And she's just a really strong female in this, but it's still funny. It's, it's romantic. And I don't think that type of rom- there is some romance in Rage Lost Ark, but I think Lost Ark is a different genre almost than this. I don't, it's almost, there are similarities, like I said, but you can't, you can't really compare. Them. Yeah. Cause I, cause I always think it's like, 
to me, Indiana Jones seeks adventure, whereas in this movie, adventure befalls on them. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all they're trying to do, I mean, initially all they're trying to do is just trade in a map to get the sister, and then just a, a series of unfortunate events happen, and she, right. you know, roped into all, all this other stuff, whereas, you know, Indiana Jones is purposely seeking out something for a, a purpose. Yeah, in Indiana Jones, there's a lot more mystery uh, history. Uh, it has religious components involved that are a little bit heavier. Uh, it's still, you know, an action adventure film based on serials, but Romancing the Stone has a, uh, I mean, it's in the title. It's, it, there's a, a relationship that develops that you're focused on throughout this film. Will they or won't they end up together? And I'm not so sure we're focused on that nearly as much with uh, Indiana Jones and Marion. Um, do we want to get into some uh, favorite scenes? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So uh, favorite scenes of the movie. Uh, my first one is the whole uh, meeting of the bellmaker scene. Uh, Juan. Yeah. Played by Alfonso Aro. That whole scene is great from the, the time they step into that, that village through getting in the mule or his barring his car. The little mule. Yeah. So, yeah. So up to that point, just to go back a little bit. Uh, Joan Wilder, his sister's been kidnapped in Columbia, as as you said, she's training a treasure map, and she gets on the wrong bus, and she gets lost. Uh, so she meets, you know, Jack Colton, who says, I'll, I'll help you find a phone for $375 in American traveler's checks. So they're trekking across the jungle, and they come upon this village in the middle of nowhere, and they're hoping to find a car. And uh, they pretty much discover the village is really a, a front for drug running. Um, so they, they get themselves in deep, deep trouble. And I think what's great too is because it really starts off with the initial scene where the two of them have to confront the people in the village. And you're kind of like, how, how are they going to get out of it? And mm-hmm. Joan Wilders kind of jumps in and asks the question like, Oh, okay. You just go to the bill maker and the bell maker has, has the, the car. And then they go see the, the bell maker and the bell maker doesn't want to have anything to do with them. And just the whole like, all right, how are you going to write yourself out of this one, Joan Wilder? And, you know, in the back of your mind, like, yeah, how are they going to get out of this? And the fact that the bellmaker is such a fan of love Wilder, it. it's, it's hysterical. I always love that moment. Yeah, it's hysterical. You're the Joan Wilder. I have all your books. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the great. Joan Wilder. And then the fact that he tells, you know, all his henchmen, like, this is the woman. Who's, yeah, who's Juanita. I read to, yeah, I read to you <laughs> every week. That is just great. Well, which provides such a wonderful image. Can you imagine the bellmaker sitting down, like having reading time with all of the other drug runners in the town? Yeah, that's what they do on a, on a weekend. They have reading time for an hour. Yeah, it's oh, hilarious, and it's so great too because then, like, you see the outside of the house and it looks dilapidated, and then as soon as mm-hmm. they open those double doors, you're just like, "Whoa, this is you know Malibu by the beach kind of thing." Right, and then even the car chase scene is hysterical too. Because here they are being chased by Zolo, and he's just pointing out little landmarks like the tree. He's giving him a yeah, tour. Yeah. See that tree? <laughs> That's the tree my, my brother planted. <laughs> or my favorite pig. We can't go that way. Even though right. he misses the favorite pig, he runs over a rooster, if you notice that. Oh, nice. <laughs> you yeah. literally see a rooster. I just love that he does a 180 and turns around, goes back up the hill, goes right back into all the bad guys in the Jeeps. Oh, like, yeah. He just goes straight in, right into the face of the enemy instead of away. Yeah, that's just a great introduction of a character, even though yeah. the character yeah. just plays at one note. 
it's awesome. It's it, it's it's hilarious. It's it's definitely one of my favorite scenes in the film. Couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's interesting for me to note that and I didn't realize this the first time I'd watched it when I when I was younger, but uh, when you and I had watched it last year, that it is Joan Wilder that saves the day like twice in this scene. And when you're expecting Michael Douglas as Jack T. Colton to be the hero, you're always thinking stereotypically that as the man, he's going to step up and be the savior. And outside of the opening scene where it shows up on the scene to save Joan from Colonel Zolo, after that, it's basically her repeatedly stepping up. And I forgot that. And it's really funny in the scene. It's clever. And yeah, it's hilarious. And then some great action, great car chase happens afterward. So yeah, I agree. Great scene. Uh, One of the scenes that blew my skirt up is the scene on the drug plane, the the crashed plane in the jungle that they come upon. I actually appreciate this scene for a couple of different reasons. One, uh, because I always enjoy character development. You know, I want to see the relationship development. Obviously, it takes the relationship to another level in this scene. It's a great setup where they kind of take cover from the rain somewhere to spend the night. And it just so happens this is a plane that was most likely, well, was running drugs. They find a bunch of keys of marijuana on the plane and they make a fire, which just cracks me up that they actually throw all the keys of marijuana onto the fire. That's the way to do it. Like you probably could have used a lot of other materials to make the fire it seemed like there was a lot of stuff thrown around in the plane, but they just burn all the weed. And that one thing I just like, man, that would get me so high. I would be so high. I, I like, how could I even have this, any kind of logical conversation with anybody? But anyway, it kind of lends itself to this, them opening themselves up to one another in the scene. And we get a little uh, character background. We get a little bit of, we get a little insight as to who Jack T. Colton is. We understand that T stands for trustworthy. And um, um, obviously this is where Joan is becoming a little bit enamored with him. And he has this mysterious background and he kind of saves the day here. I guess he does save here in this scene where he kills the the poisonous Bushmaster uh, snake. And it's enjoyable. I, I, I like this. There's a, uh, there's a little pl- uh, playfulness back and forth. He's trying to figure out why she's there at this point. He, she doesn't even know why she's still there, why she's being followed. And some good information is revealed. There's good exposition, a little relationship development. So I enjoy that scene. The other reason why I like the scene is because this was one of those, this was in a rewrite. There's a rewrite that surrounds this whole thing where, this scene was entirely different, and I believe you and I watched the deleted, scenes, uh, yeah. deleted scene, right? Yeah. And it does not work nearly as well as what they ended up doing with this. Because they went back, and this was, I think, at a reshoot like months later. They fixed this, and uh, it works a lot better. Am I, am I mistaken, or is that correct? I'm not sure, to be honest. Yeah, okay. I'm pretty – well, I'm, I know – that the scene on the plane, I mean, there was a lot of rewrites involved mm-hmm. and uh, reshoots. Uh, they had to edit and fix that. But I enjoy the scene now, and I think it it moves the story forward nicely. So do you have a, another favorite scene, man? Yeah, um, and it's kind of funny because it actually the initial dialogue between 
Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner at the bus crash site. Uh, right. So, yeah, so we find out that uh, Joan Wilder's got on the wrong bus, and she's asking the bus driver, is this the right bus to Cartagena? And the bus driver's not paying attention. The bus crashes into a car. Everybody gets off and leaves. And then um, Zolo is on the bus, too, because he wants to get a hold of the map. And then he tries to hold up Joan. And then here comes Jack Holton to save the day. And then we see that Jack Burns' t- world has totally been destroyed. His, you know, his dreams have literally flown off. And now, you know, here, here's this, this woman who has no idea where she is, no idea where she needs to go. And she's asking him these questions and he's just, these just quick one word, you know, what's the closest town? Miami. You know, is there a right. bus coming? It's, it's rush hour, you know? Yeah. And then just the whole setting up the, all right, well, can you find me a phone? <laughs> the price for helping a stranded woman find a phone is $500, you know? Right. And, yeah. and the negotiation thing. Cause you just see the chemistry there right now and you kind of get that. Is he a good guy or is he going to try to take advantage of her? Is he just really upset because, you know, he's got to start over and what else am I going to do anyway? So I I think it was just a a great rapport between the two of them that just really carries over throughout the the whole film. How one's in the environment and the other is definitely the fish out of water. Absolutely. Well said. I I totally agree. It's It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's a great introduction of Jack Colton because you get a little of the action mixed in there initially. And uh, you can see, obviously, he knows how to handle himself. And it is hilarious that our introduction to him revolves around these exotic birds that he was planning to sell. That we then learn in that actual, that plane scene I was talking about, that that probably told it about $15,000 worth of exotic birds oh, yeah. that he had hunted and captured that he was going to sell. Like, that was his, and that's one of those things. I'm like, is that one of his specialties one of his uh like a special set of skills that he has is wrangling exotic birds is that our hero's skill set yeah i don't know Uh, just one of his many skill sets uh but it's just kind of a a funny scene but a great setup for for everything to come now i was you brought up the fact is that we don't know where jack colton stands is he going to be in this for himself as she accuses him of being or and is he then when he finds out about the treasure is he just going to be all about the treasure about getting the money or does real feelings uh, exist for joan does he develop feelings for her does he care about her and her well-being and getting her sister back and so this leads to my next scene that blew my skirt up is actually when they reach the the town that's having the celebration and this is where I think you could make an argument where Jack Colton kind of makes a turn here where he actually is falling for her a bit and the romance goes up to another level. Uh, so I enjoy the scene because he's spent the $375 in American express traveler checks on clothes for her, a nice uh, something to go out in and he buys dinner and gives her a necklace, a Corazona heart you know, and so it's romantic and then they dance and it works. And I love the juxtaposition between them dancing. And this is what it, why it's one of my favorite scenes is them dancing. And then Danny DeVito as Ralph in this is hilarious. I think he's hilarious in this film. And in this particular film, he knows that the, the, the treasure map to El Corazon, the treasure itself, 
is in her purse, which is hanging on the chair that's at the table, but they're up in, on the dance floor. And he's Danny DeVito's character. Ralph is climbing underneath a table on all fours. And he's about to reach for the, the purse to get the map. And then the woman at the table discovers him and, you know, thinks he's up to no good under the table and literally beats the crap out of him is punching him and beating the crap out of him while we have this romantic dance happening between Jack and Joan. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. It's a romantic scene. I like it. It kind of melts my heart a little bit, get a little sappy during the scene. And then I find out in a little research that a little jumping to the fun facts and trivia here that that's actually them dancing for real. Like Michael Douglas was dancing the scene, had no idea that Zemeckis was rolling camera that he was actually shooting. He, uh, so this is kind of a candid moment that was caught on camera. So there's no doubt, like you can really see the no doubt that Douglas and um, Kathleen Turner had chemistry. Yeah. There's, um, there's a shot I love in that scene where Kathleen Turner kind of shows off the dress and she does this, she makes eye contact, and then she shies away, looks down, and then makes herself look up at him again, and then has to bring her eyes back down. So you, you know there's that moment. She's like, I'm, you know, I'm falling for this guy big time. And I just I just love that shot. It's so cool. Yeah. Just you know, because yeah. you're just like absolutely yeah. You just want someone. There's a lot of making eyes in this. Exactly. Whole and that, and it's definitely yeah. as, as you know, something like as a guy who'd like I would love for a woman to look at me that way where it's absolutely like she's so yeah. enamored with you that she can, she can't make eye contact because you know, it, it makes her heart race. Right. Yeah. And then um, for Danny DeVito who plays Ralph, who is, is one of the cousins that kidnapped this. I think my favorite scene with him is when he's in the police station on the phone yes. with his cousin, Ira, and he's just, just calling him every name in the book. And then when he I have sees, a quote yeah. from that scene. Yeah. And then when he sees the wanted poster mm-hmm. and he's trying to grab it. And it's one of those like trying to stretch the arm and just the way that yeah. that scene And then he falls over yeah, the I, counter. It's like yeah, 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 that that was a belly laugh moment for me. I remember the first time I saw yeah. it. Because you did not expect that. That him just totally tumble over. Uh, that that is definitely my favorite Danny DeVito scene in the film. Yeah, he's I think he's great all around in this film. So to wrap up the scenes that blew my skirt up, I'm just going to mention one other, because these aren't my favorite scenes. I'm just going to mention one other moment because there is that great sequence at the very end, our action sequence, our finale, the battle over El Corazon, the battle between Joan and uh, Colonel Zolo, the incident with the alligator. And then of course, Jack Colton wrestling the alligator, attempting to get the, the gem back from the jaws of the alligator but uh in that sequence when they're basically trying to get uh jack to tell them where the gem is he says it's someplace safe he won't give up the location and one of the military guys basically nails him in the nuts with the butt of his rifle and it's just hilarious to me every time man because you hear the clank and then michael douglas does makes the greatest expression where we're as an audience member you're like (sighs) What just did he yeah. just get wrecked, like just railed right in the cojones, you know, by the this, the butt of this gun? Oh my goodness! As men, you know, we all feel that whenever we see that happen, and it hits us where it counts. And he makes that expression where he just kind of like, 
like shakes it off. And then he does that weird shimmy and we realize he had the gem in his pants and it was like in the crotch of his pants. And so, and then it goes down the leg of his pants. I love that moment every time I see it. And I love his expression. Yeah. That ending, just the, the setup of the fortress, mm-hmm. and, but yeah, there's three really good moments. And of course, you know, the, the one of Zolo losing his hand to the, um, to the alligator. Right. And then the second one, cause I remember doing, Oh, is when, Zolo's fighting Joan Wilder in the top. And of course, Jack's got the alligator and he doesn't want to let him go. And he's reaching for the gun, reaching for the gun and then lets it go to grab the gun and then picks it up. And you just hear click, click. I I remember just going, oh, because you really thought that was going to be, you really thought, you know, back then you really thought that was going to be the end. You're just going to shoot her and that would, that would be the end of the story. Right. And then the other one was with Joan Wilder when he's fighting Zolo and she's got the switchblade and mm-hmm. she switches and you're like, Oh good. She's going to get him and she's going to use the blade to throw it. And then she throws right. it at him and he blocks it with the, with the wood and it just sticks in there and the sister yeah. passes out. And I'm like, Oh, that was so good too. Because you're like, here it is. You know, she's learning to take care of herself and now she's going to take out Zolo right now, but it doesn't happen. You're like, Oh man. It's like, Oh, oh, for two. First, Douglas doesn't take take him out. Now she can't take him out. It's like, oh, what's what's going to happen? So, there, yeah, there's in that that final scene. There's so many good little moments that are that are peppered throughout, and just and just the location itself really lends to that scene. Also, yeah, I think it really works. I t- I totally agree. The uh, and the genius of that moment when she does the knife throwing is it's a callback to the very beginning of the film when it's her character Angelina defeats the bad guy in the opening sequence by throwing the knife into his chest. So it's smart. It's really smart that that's how you think she's going to get the bad guy at the very end. And it turns out that's not true. He blocks it with a piece of wood. Yeah, it's just not like the books. Nope. But is it? Yeah, it's a great moment. Now I have a, later in my Swiss cheese segment, I was like, exactly when did Joan Wilder learn how to throw a knife like that? I'm not sure, but we're just going to go with it. Mm-hmm. We're just going to go with it. So uh, back to scenes that blew my skirt up. I'm going to agree with Bill Bant. My favorite scene is definitely when both Jack and Joan are walking the streets of this town, which turns out to be full of the drug runners, and uh, they meet the bellmaker. And he happens to be Joan Wilder's number one fan. Hilarious, great, great action scene that ensues. So I'm in agreement with you on favorite scene. All right. Next up, uh, soundtrack. And it's funny because we mentioned the bellmaker too. Because Eddie Grant had done a right. song for this movie called Romancing the Stone. And the only time you hear it is literally like two seconds worth in the Bellmaker's scene. Oh, that's right. There's a guitar riff, right? Yeah, they open scene. the door and you hear it and, and that's it. Um, it doesn't play over the ending credits. Uh, it's not in the beginning credits. I mean, there is a music video with... Eddie Grant was seen from the things. Um, but for some reason they, they didn't use in the, it's even credited in the credits and I was right. trying to find out why it didn't happen. And, and all I saw was there was an argument with the producers and it, and it left it at that. Mm. And it's so funny because when they make the sequel, Jewel of Nile, I mean, you could not get away from that Billy Ocean song. Oh, my God. That was no. everywhere. I mean, they used that so much to push the movie. The music video had of the stars in it. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, the Romance in the Stone uh, title track is nowhere really in, in the film. I know you, you mentioned the soundtrack by Alan Silvestri. What did you think of it? 
I, I found it. I'm not crazy about the soundtrack as a whole. Exactly. But I am because it is very cheesy 80s style. Uh, there's a lot of, because I'm a big fan of orchestral soundtracks. I've collected them over the years. I'm a big fan of Ellen Silvestri's scores uh, from Back to the Future, of course, is my number one of his. But then after that, uh, he's done fantastic work. Still still doing great work. But in this particular film, I know I don't care for the score. However, that opening, like, brief thematic song when the first title card comes up, when the title comes up of Romancing the Stone, it's instantaneously recognizable as Alan Silvestri because I heard it and all I could think of was Back to the Future. Now, when I first seen it, like, obviously, it's not as recognizable. Now, it couldn't be more recognizable as, like, Alan Silvestri. It's his signature is all over it. And it's just three notes because if you think of, like, Back to the Future, for instance, part of the theme is, and it's very subtle and quiet a lot, is the... And you're like, Back to the Future. Oh, my God. Awesome. Love that song. So recognizable. And he does something very similar with three notes in this. And it takes you, it really is very romantic in a way. It's in the beginning of the film. And then in that dance sequence, the scene I I put in my uh, scenes that blew my skirt up, it's used there too, where the background noise lowers and then that score comes in. The orchestral score, not the type of like guitar, drums and rhythmic stuff that was in most a lot of this score during like the action sequences, which I don't care for personally. That's just not my my taste. It's not my thing. I like the give me some strings, give me some horns, and I'm happy. Mm-hmm. You know? And so those moments I, I liked from from the music of this. Yeah, I found it uneven. I didn't Yeah. Like in the first ten minutes, the only part I liked was like Zoloft's theme. Did you call him Zoloft? Did I? Zolo. You did it. Yeah. That's brilliant. That's great. <laughs> maybe, I need, maybe I need some right now. Zolo. Let's Sorry. call him Colonel Zoloft right. from now on. Dr. Zoloft. Yeah. Is he? Is it Colonel Zolo? Because I've seen Or is, does uh, DeVito, does Ralph call him Dr. Zolo at one point? It was Doctor of Death. Early on. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Okay. Zolo's theme um, I liked. And then the music they play when she's on the bus mm-hmm. in Columbia, when she's on the wrong bus. Right. But yeah, I, I just, I, for some reason, most of the time I, I felt like it didn't kind of match the movie. You, I think you nailed it by saying, sorry to interrupt, but you said uneven. And I think that's a perfect way to describe this score. And there's an entire chunk of the film that has no music at all. Mm-hmm. And it almost kind of works where you feel like you're in the jungle because you hear the sounds of nature and you hear the rain droplets and you hear the leaves and the machete cutting through, et cetera, some good sound design stuff. But I recognized that immediately, and I wrote it down in my notes. I said, there's a whole chunk here until they get to, uh, like, the bell maker, where there's no music at all. So it just it cuts in and out. So uneven is a great way to describe it. Yeah, and he definitely uh, made up for it with, with Back to the Future, which is probably one of my favorites of all time. One of the most iconic scores oh, yeah. of all time, sure. All right, uh, we'll move on to our next segment. Oh, yeah, and little, I'm going to put a button on that, too, okay. is... Um, that this is the first collaboration between uh, Robert Zemeckis and Alan Silvestri. Oh, okay. They would be a pairing for films to come. Yeah. Which, which seems to happen a lot with your director or composer. Um, yeah. You think, yeah. of course, you know, uh, John Williams and Steven Spielberg and Danny Elfman and, and Tim Burton. So for sure. Yeah. Our next segment, 
we'd like to call our Swiss cheese segment. Because although this movie is delicious, it does have its holes, Bill. Uh, which, what do you got for uh, Swiss cheese, Jason? I have 72 different things. 72 different things? That's um, it? <laughs> I'm going to ask you a couple questions, make a couple points. My first one is, Bill Bant, yes. is Joan Wilder a good writer? Is she? She a good writer. Uh, and going back to the film itself, one of the things I did like was how you meet Joan with the typewriter and she kind of walks around the apartment and it gives you all those mm-hmm. visual clues. And she did she did win a, an award for romance. Walden Books yeah. gave her the uh, book of the month. Yeah, yeah. Romance book of the month. So, you know, she's got to be okay. I mean, I think she... <laughs> yeah. Is it is it mentioned there? She's written she's written over like fourteen books at that point. So she's quite successful. Yes. Yeah. And to answer my own question, I think the answer I would give is it doesn't matter. Obviously, if she's a good writer or not, she's a good uh, romance novelist. It's just funny because the opening of the film is you're led into the world of her book. The ending of her book, you see the actual characters kind of playing out her novel, and it's really cheesy and I'm like, Oh man, is she, she's not even, she's terrible. She's a terrible writer, but it's funny actually. And it is just like a, if you've ever read, I've actually never read an entire romance novel. I've, you know, the ones with uh, Fabio on the cover right? and those great titles and I'll read a few lines. I'm like, Oh wow, this is really like overdone, mm-hmm. overcooked. And that's what it is. So maybe she, I guess she could be very, she's good at her genre. Yeah. She knows, she knows how to play to her audience. Clearly. But you mentioned her walking around her apartment. As soon as you look in her fridge and she's got the cat and she's just kind of sad. I'm like, Joan Wilder is not a healthy person. She's not healthy at all. No. She is over medicated and she suffers from depression and obsession and delusion uh, she's in love with Jesse, one of her creations, a hero from her novels. I just thought that that's funny. That's maybe not even a, a whole one point, just like an observation. Just cracked me up when I was watching the opening going, Ooh, yeah, she's sick. <laughs> she needs help. This poor, poor woman. And it's not going to be solved by a relationship. She needs therapy. Um, <laughs> twice, twice a week on the couch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get into this next one and then I'll let you take off with some okay. holes of your own. Bill Bant, is this plot a little bit convoluted? Is it a little little much? I I've, remember thinking this you know, a couple times when I've seen this film and come across it, between the fact that you have a romance novelist who gets caught up in this adventure, which is great. The concept is great. But we have her sister and her husband, uh, her sister and her brother-in-law were living in Colombia. And then for some reason, the husband had been murdered, but before he was murdered, managed to forward mail to Joan in New York City. And the piece of mail happened to contain the map, the treasure map to El Corazon. And we know that clearly somebody wanted that map and this, her brother-in-law was killed for it. But Elaine still resides in Colombia and seems to be doing pretty well. She has a pretty nice ride down there, pretty nice sled that she's driving. Oh, yeah. And by the way, we never find out ever what Elaine or her husband, Eduardo, I think it was his name, do. We have no idea what what, what was no. their occupation. What was 
what were they doing in Colombia in the first place? Why were they living there? What was, I don't know. What was their profession? Who knows? But so now, not only is this Colonel Solo, this doctor of death, who is a bad man working for the local police and government, cops, military police, whatever it is in Colombia, he's wanting the El Corazon gem. So he's tracking the map, which you know, leads him to Joan in New York and then back to Columbia. And now another group of people is also after the El Corazon, which, so we're introduced to cousins, Ralph and Ira. And so do you see where I'm going with this? Where it's like, kind of like, did you ever feel, my question is that this was a little convoluted. I don't think it bothered me that much to be honest. Cause I I don't think I, yeah, I think I just, I got swept up in the, adventure of it and never really sat and thought about it but yeah i mean it kind of makes sense it's like how does zolo know the map got mailed to joan to even go mm-hmm. to new york to find it i mean i understand how ira and ralph because after they kidnapped sister yeah i know you're absolutely again answer to my own question is it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if it's convoluted or not the fact is we have multiple parties going after the gym and Joan Wilder's caught up in the middle of it, right? She's just trying to save her sister from the kidnappers, whom are Ralph and Ira, but Ira mainly. But uh, I do think it's funny you mentioned that Zolo goes all the way to New York City. He tracks the package. Like, he takes this personally. The fact that he traveled himself personally, didn't send one of his, like, top guys or one of his uh, maybe even lower-ranked soldiers to track the package. He flies to New York City himself, and I'm impressed. I admire his uh, commitment. And mm-hmm. to go after Joan in New York and then follow her all the way back just to go right back to Columbia. <laughs> you know? Funny you mention that because then, because now that I'm thinking about it, it's like, what what does he need it for? Like, I understand why uh-huh. Ira and Ralph need it for money, but it's like, right, it's going to be their, Zola, big, their last big score. Exactly. Like, they're like Zola antiquities already, dealers or some, something. Zola already runs that whole country. He's got the whole country in his back pocket. What, what does he need the gem for? Right. What more? What? Yeah. How's it going to advance? How much him? more powerful will that make him? Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know what his drive is. Like Iron Ralph, I get. Zolo, no, I don't get it. Oh, this movie's now been ruined. <laughs> Tell me about your holes, Bill. <laughs> this is my biggest pet peeve about this movie. And it's so stupid. That it bothers me just from the first time I've seen this movie to even when I watch it now, every time I see this part, it drives me nuts is when they dig up the jewel in the mother's milk in the, yes. in the cave underneath yes. the waterfall and they open it and it's that ceramic bunny rabbit that uh-huh. drives me nuts because I'm kind of like, wait, this is supposed to be a jewel that's probably been buried here for like a hundred years and somehow it's in the middle of a ceramic bunny rabbit because i just remember as a kid like my mom taking ceramics and i think she made a ceramic bunny rabbit that looked just like that i'm like so that that's telling me that ceramic bunny's only been in there like five years yet this map looks like it's been around for a hundred i was like why why couldn't it be put in like a clay pot or some kind of other silly looking artifact that matches that time period not not a <laughs> ceramic bunny rabbit. That right, drives okay. me okay. nuts. It, you found it, it upsetting. It bothers me all the time because I'm just kind of like, this something that's been buried in here for, you know, how long? 
So there's no way they had ceramic bunny rabbits back then. Who knows if they even celebrated <laughs> Easter when this jewel was made. So why is it a ceramic <laughs> bunny rabbit? Follow my logic, if you will, Bill. That's absolutely hilarious. Um, and I understand it's off-putting. It is. Because it's the last thing you think they would find. You're expecting a Raiders of the Lost Ark moment here, which is what this film is, again, clearly not. But even um, if it was like a wooden top. Even though they have built up the – yeah. But I agree with you. They have built up some of the lore. There's a treasure map, right? There is some history here. But, you know, okay, so they find the ceramic. But here's my logic is that it appears to have been buried and wrapped as um, something that would hide drugs, basically like drug runners in that area, you know, how they would wrap things uh, or ship things such as a ceramic bunny or something and then hide the drugs within it. And obviously the gem mm-hmm. is inside of it. Joan obviously makes reference to one of her novels and that's why they decided to break it open in the first place. Like that's one, something that she had written, but I don't know. That's kind of watching it now. It is weird. There's something inherently exactly. weird about it. Like it, it, it takes you out of the moment yeah. when it's kind of like the, Ooh, ah, here it is. There's the, you know, we've discovered something that's been buried, like you said, for some time. And then it's this strange ceramic. Why a ceramic? Right. Why can't like, can it be just some kind of like clay elephant or something or clay jaguar? Or why even put it in any, if you're wrapping it and burying it, I put it in a ceramic, exactly. anything, just put it, just put it by itself, wrap it or put it in a, in a cloth that's wrapped by a tweed or whatever yeah i was still I, I was, I i'm know. still okay with them like opening it and not being what they expected and then say oh break it open that's fine i just the fact yeah. that it was a ceramic bunny yeah. rabbit still to this day drives me nuts it's strange still it's drives strange. me nuts <laughs> there's got to be a story behind it i would love to ask michael douglas or uh, zemeckis or any of them just like what was the reasoning yeah. behind that what was the thought process behind that? That's funny. Yeah, it's like my mom just made this two years ago. <laughs> so what are you saying? This got buried two years ago? Yeah. Fucking rabbit. And it's creepy okay. looking too. All right, go ahead. Uh, which, what do you got for uh, Swiss cheese? So I mentioned, yeah, do we ever know what, what Joan's sister Elaine does or her husband does that was killed? Why were they in Columbia? Never. We know and find out. We do see Elaine hop into her car and drive off before she's kidnapped. And she's kidnapped here by this kid, which is hilarious. It's a great scene. And I want to give a toss out to a particular weapon known as the bolus, which you just, you know, can't get enough of. And if it's used properly, it is deadly or uh, extremely effective. And this kid is dexterous. Like he has some dexterity with that bolus and he, he knocks out a lane and hops into the car, cranks, you know, turns it over and, and takes off. And one of my holes here is that as soon as that car comes around the corner, it is most obviously not a kid driving that car. Oh, yeah, exactly. The stunt driver is a full-on adult. It's hilarious. I was laughing out loud going, oh, my God. I know. It's funny. <laughs> they like- cut back to you so you see the kid driving a car. But when it like from a distance, guy with a big mop of head of hair and. It's like, oh, my God. I was like, yeah, that kid throws a bolus better than I ever would. And I was like, and he drives a stick better than I ever would. And then, yeah, they do the you see right. driver's scene. I'm like, okay, I feel a little bit better. Oh, here's another one for you. Here's a question. Does Joan Wilder just have a serious problem opening mini liquor bottles? Oh, she yeah. Just have like a weird issue with that? Because clearly in the opening, she finds she has to get a tool like pliers 
right. in order to open the many. And then when she's in the jungle and she decides, and I don't know if she's an alcoholic or what, but <laughs> she needs a drink right there while she's hanging out in the bushes and uh, can't seem to get that bottle open e- either. Did you have any other holes? Um, the only other thing that, that I always found kind of weird is when uh, Joan gets to Columbia and she's at the airport and Ralph is there. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, okay, why is he there? I mean, couldn't she just gave him the map right then and just we just call it a day? Or right. I didn't understand what his role at the airport was. I thought the exact same thing. Wasn't her specific instructions was to go to Hotel Cartagena. Exactly. And then call them. So basically he was just there to tell the audience she got on the wrong bus. I don't know. There was no reason for him to be at the airport. That There's something must have happened in the rewrites. Yeah, there's a script flaw there. Because that does not make any sense. I totally agree. Yeah. I, I yeah. thought the same thing. Here, I'm going to jump to fun facts and trivia. I got to do it here. Go ahead. Is with the bus. We know that the bus initially had either come from, maybe come from Cartagena because the sign on the bus says Cartagena. But then either the driver or someone else flips the sign over. And now we know the bus knows no longer going to Cartagena. Now the sign reads Castillo de San Felipe. It just so happens that Castillo de San Felipe is actually a castle in Cartagena. So technically the bus would still be going to Cartagena. So either way, she was just taking the scenic route. Uh, so yeah, a little blooper there for you. Got a couple other holes here or issues. Uh, did you go for it? Okay. So after the romantic dance with the fireworks at the remote town, Jack and Joan go to bed together and uh, they make sweet, sweet love down by the fire. And immediately afterward, Jack promises Joan that he'd take her around the world on his boat, if he could, once they get the gym. And I was just thinking, is that a little little too much too soon? Maybe go on a couple more dates first, get to know one another. I just feel like he's he's really putting it all out there right away after their, their first night of their love connection. Just saying, yeah, why don't you, we should sail around the world together. It's like, wow, that's that's a lot. Yeah, that's commitment. Oh, also, are, so are crocodiles attracted to blood? Like sharks? That I do not I was know. trying to do a little, and they're alligators, I guess. Oh, yeah. Are alligators attracted to blood? And I tried to do a little research on this. Couldn't really get a definitive answer on that. But here's my number one issue with the entire film. Honestly, Bill Bant is after Jack Colton wrestles the alligator at the top of the fort, and the alligator gets away, and he knows he has to go after it to get the gym. Our hero, Jack T. Colton, dives off the fort and belly flops. It's an awful <laughs> dive. It's one of the most terrible. Di- it is a terrible dive. Oh, yeah. All right. So let's uh, move on to our next segment. It's, hey, it's that actor. Um, so in this segment, we spotlight an actor. It's either their film debut, character actor. We've seen a ton of films, and we just can't remember where we've seen that person before. Jason, what's your, hey, it's that actor. Hey, it's that actor. So you know what? I'm going to go with the bellmaker from our favorite scene bill i'm going with juan the bellmaker alfonso arau i did not know his name and upon rewatch i saw him appear and immediately all i could think of was el guapo from three amigos <laughs> i was like oh my god there he, that's him it's that guy it's him it's that guy from uh, three amigos He's amazing. And he's hilarious as El Guapo and Three Amigos, one of my cult favorite comedies. And then upon a little further research, uh, for those listening out there, uh, not only are Bill and I big Star Wars fans, we are big Miami Vice fans. And Alfonso Arau 
played Jorge Cruz in the Miami Vice episode God's Work in 1987. Uh, That's my, hey, it's that actor, Alfonso Arau, who played the Bellmaker. So uh, my, hey, it's that actor is Miss Irwin, who was Joan Wilder's neighbor, uh, played by Eve Smith. It's hilarious because she, because I was looking at her credits and her first credit is like in 1945. And then she doesn't do anything again until the 80s. And every credit either lists her as old lady, old woman, elderly woman. Nice. And she was in almost every TV show in the 80s. Moonlighting, St. Elsewhere, A-Team, Highway to Heaven, Happy Days, Cheers. But the Phil role, and she has a tiny, small part, but I always remember this. She was in Star Trek for The Voyage Home, where she's the elderly patient that Bones looks at. And it's just like, oh, man, this medieval science and gives her the pill <laughs> that automatically cures her. And then she gets up there. It's like, that man gave me a pill. I'm alive now. I'm okay. I know that. But yeah, I know that scene. Yeah. yeah. So that, yeah. that is that is That's Eve Smith. Great. So it's Little Miss Irwin, who won't get in, go, won't get in the elevator. Oh, I, I have that. My final thoughts is one of my favorite quotes from the film. Might as well just hit it right now. Go ahead. Mrs. Irwin on the stairs says, Oh, pumpkin, I never get into an elevator alone. You know, rapists. (laughs) (laughs) It just made me laugh. I was like, uh, That's our, yeah, that's our, hey, it's that actor. Yeah, good call, man. That's hilarious. Oh, and you know what? I'm going to, it's not a hey, that's that actor, but I'm just going to give a shout out to Kim Heron, who played the role of Angelina in the opening of the film. Which is again just you know I just thought she was super hot. That's all. Oh yeah, yeah, super she hot. was gorgeous. All right, so so moving on. Uh, facts and trivia. Any anything that we did not touch on in facts and trivia yet? That we did come, cover a lot of it. I think already. Um, but 20th Century Fox had uh, some doubts about Robert Zemeckis. Not big fans of his early work. And after seeing uh, the dailies or rough cut of Romancing the Stone, and it did not screen well with test audiences, they pulled Zemeckis off of follow-up project, which is Cocoon. He was slated to direct Cocoon, and they took him off because they were ye of little faith, not knowing that uh, Romancing the Stone would actually do quite well. Uh, they did have to go back and, you know, for a couple of reshoots and they changed some things. But uh, Zemeckis went back into the into the editing room and fixed things and the film became a hit. Yeah. Um, just the shoot itself was very arduous, you know, down in, in Mexico with the conditions and stuff like that. Yeah. It was at Veracruz, Mexico. Hildago, I think, was where they ended up shooting it. Yeah. Kathleen Turner, throughout the course of the shoot, got eight stitches. There was a thing on the set where... They were moving a, that camera to somewhere else, and then a boulder fell and landed literally where the camera was. So if a crew or the camera was there, that all would have got smashed. It was, yeah, it was a very a lot of bumps and bruises on on that shoot, and it shows too because we didn't even we never even talked about the the, the mudslide scene. Right. It, it's funny as, as much as a kid, you you would think how fun that was, but then watching it again, like oh, I would have hated having to film that. Mm-hmm. And, just hearing about the process of just the shoots and literally throwing mud on you. They said they were going up to like 30 miles an hour down the shoots and stuff like that. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. But no thanks. But it's kind of like the signature scene of that movie. And it, it is a fun scene, but yeah, shooting that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. But no thanks. Good point. Yeah. And I guess 
Kathleen Turner had a little issue with Zemeckis initially uh, because he felt that Zemeckis, you know, being a big film nerd in a way or student in a way, was more into the gadgetry and the cameras and special effects versus uh, working with the actors on location. So she, but then they hit it off because they would work together again on uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit because she voices Jessica Rabbit. Yes. Another little, uh, this is not a fun fact, unfortunately. Uh, it, it was a little bit of behind the scenes tragedy because the screenplay was written in 1979 by a Malibu waitress named Diane Thomas, who then di- uh, died tragically in a car crash just shortly after Romancing the Stone was released. Her boyfriend was driving the car, and the car happened to be a Porsche, which was a gift from Michael Douglas. Uh, and that was the last time Michael Douglas saw her was when uh, he presented her with the gift with the Porsche. And so unfortunately that was the only screenplay that she saw get produced. Originally, I think she was going to work on the sequel, but couldn't mm-hmm. because she was actually working on a project with Spielberg. Correct. I think she was about seven weeks in on that one. Um, unfortunately at her passing. Yeah. Yeah. And initially Michael Douglas was criticized for paying uh, Diane Thomas so much for, she was a first time writer and he paid her $250,000 to option that script. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those uh, people that say that Romancing the Stone is just a Raiders of the Lost Ark clone, remember that Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in 1981, but the screenplay was actually originally written for Romancing the Stone uh, in 1979. So that yeah. was a couple of years before Raiders even hit the screen. Another little fun fact. So other lead actors considered for the role of Jack T. Colton were Burt Reynolds, Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman, and Christopher Reeve, as well as, of course, and you'll define this in all research, that Sylvester Stallone was also, uh, oh, yeah. which I, we just don't know if that's true. Do your own research. Don't believe what you read online at all anymore. Uh, but then uh, this is true, is that originally Deborah Winger was going to play the role of Joan Wilder, not Kathleen. There we go. So there's some uh, facts of trivia for you about Romancing the Stone. I've got, oh, there's one last one, the fray. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. The phrase Romancing the Stone is a piece of jeweler's jargon referring to a step in preparing a gem for use in jewelry. There you go. There we go. All right. So, yeah, so facts and trivia for you. So moving on to the box office. Uh, so the movie was released on March 30th, 1984. Only debuted at number four when it first came out. It was behind the juggernaut known as Police Academy. Um, and it, it did end up grossing uh, $76.5 million. And for the first nine weeks it was out, it stayed in the top four the whole time, but never never reached number one. I think the highest was number two. So movies that I lost out to at number one while I was out. Police Academy, which I already mentioned. Greystoke, Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter, Breaking, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, yeah, so for yep. yeah for nine weeks, it was it was, it was was holding pretty steady there in the, in the top four. That was the box office for Romance in the Stone. Excellent. And then moving on to the Siskel and Ebert review at the movies. They gave it two thumbs up. But their biggest pet peeve about the movie was the title. They both hated it, mm. which I, I thought was kind of funny. I don't think I've ever had an issue with the title. Mentioned the facts too about the title itself. So to me, I don't know. I didn't. I, didn't, 
I think it works. I think it's great. And I, for some reason, didn't pick this up before, but DeVito's character of Ralph pointing out to Joan Wilder saying, oh, he's just in it for the money. He's romancing you for the stone. He's romancing you for those, you know, it's like, oh, and that totally worked. I think that's a great title because mm-hmm. you never know, because that was going to be my question to you earlier, Bill Ben is like, when do you think Jack Colton makes the turn? Because we understand from little side scenes when she's not paying attention that he is in it for the money. He's in it for the gem. And he's trying to copy, you know, he's going to make a copy of the map after she takes it. And uh, he's not in it for romance, right? Mm -hmm. And in a way, he is just using her. When do you think he, you know, finally Uh, decides to either do the right thing, if you want to put it that way, or uh, that he's going to be somewhat trustworthy, as he says, the T in his name stands for? um, I think after they have that little uh, tryst in the hotel and you see him slide the map back in the in her bag, even though you, you know, you think she he possibly made a copy, but I don't think, well, I thought he put the, I think he puts the map back in the bag because she, at that point is like, you know what? Let's go get the gem. I know I could just turn the map in and get my sister back, but let's go get the gem for additional leverage. And he's like, oh, okay, now I don't need it to copy it. She's decided she wants to go actually after the treasure. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know if he was doing that out of chivalry or like as if he had actually made fully made the turn. I think he just realized he didn't need the map anymore that she was going to go for the gem. Oh, regardless. Gotcha. That was my interpretation. Okay. No, I see. So you're still, they kind of leave it up in the air. You're not. And I think this is kind of a smart thing in the films that you're not quite sure really if he's going to, if he really is truly in love with her, he is more about, the treasure mm-hmm. and not until the very end when he comes back to New York city. Yeah. Is it confirmed? You know? Yeah, that's true. Any final thoughts? Yeah. You know, uh, this film turned 35, uh, back in 2019, which just again, makes me feel old, but, uh, it's a great movie and it still stands the test of time. It's a very entertaining film. Uh, we talked about some of the quotes, DeVito as Ralph, just hilarious. In that police station, he's got, like, when he, he really is laying into it, he's laying into Ira on the phone, he says, you think I'm going to go up and introduce myself to every cop in the Pueblo? The way he says it. Later on, when uh, he apprehends, basically, Joan and Jack, right after, as they retrieve the gem from the mother's milk there in the cave, he's got him at gunpoint, and he says... Now move it before Batman comes home. <laughs> oh, and then DeVito's delivery when they're all like captured by the bad guys at the end in the final action sequence, DeVito says to Ira, I had it in my hands, Ira, in my hands, these hands that are going to break every bone in your body. And then they point all the guns at him later. <laughs> so speaking of, we don't know, you know, whether or not Jack is going to be the stand-up guy and, do right by Joan or be with her or, you know, sweep her off her feet at the end, or is he can just going to go after treasure and disappear? He has a great line at the end, which just gives Joan that self-affirmation that she doesn't need him. She doesn't need that fantasy, the relationship. She's a strong, independent woman who's quite accomplished in her own right. When she says to him, basically, oh, so that's it. You're just going to leave. You're just going to leave. And he just looks at her and says, you're going to be all right, Joan Wilder. Yeah, mm-hmm. you always were. Great moment. 
and he kisses her and it's like you always were you were, you always were all right you were all right to begin with you just had to just discover that on your own there's a nice little message there at the end other thoughts got a couple questions for you regarding kathleen turner and michael douglas but i just wanted to mention that this film did kind of launch in a I, shouldn't, I don't know if it was launch but it was kind of a jumping off point for a lot of people's careers here kathleen turner michael douglas danny devito michael douglas and danny devito used to be roommates in new york city themselves uh so they had been longtime friends michael douglas's career took off a little bit sooner a little quicker when he landed the role on Streets of San Francisco, but then also got into producing. And this is a fun little trivia fact, is that Michael Douglas continued to pay rent at the apartment that the, he shared with Danny DeVito after he moved out and was kind of moving on to stardom, which was kind of cool. And then put Danny DeVito in uh, Romancing the Stone. And then the, the pairing, or I should say the threesome of Michael Douglas, Danny DeVito and Kathleen Turner would go on to Jewel of the Nile and then reunite as well for War of the Roses. They made a good team. And I was just going to ask you, man, what's your favorite Kathleen Turner movie and or uh, favorite Michael Douglas movie, man? Uh, I was a big fan of Body Heat. Ah, that was my choice. And then Michael Douglas. Go ahead. Black Rain. Just say it. I know it's Black Rain. Oh, this okay. This that is one of my call favorites, but <laughs> oh, Black Rain. <laughs> Not a perfect film, but I still love it. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 But that always brought totally. back memories from college. Every time we would try to watch that, and all our, our female friends would just love it because of Andy Garcia. Yeah. And then after Andy Garcia bit the dust, <laughs> they'd all fall asleep before the movie ended. <laughs> the guys that would still be watching the end of Black Rain. Watch your tail, cowboy. Yeah, I think when you say Michael Douglas is the first movie that jumps out to me but i mean he's he's had a great career yeah i would have to say this one yeah i for michael douglas i'm gonna go with wall street oh yeah geez okay just he's such a powerhouse Mm -hmm. in that film oh and also kathleen turner you know body heat is my favorite kathleen turner film she's also in one of the my most hated films of all time which is vi warshawski i've never never seen that one i i saw it once and i've I've, i guess vowed Never to see it again because I never have seen it. That's all I got, Bill Bant. All right. Yeah. So my final thoughts is um, certainly if you have not seen this film, definitely check it out. I definitely think it's film. It's for the most part does, you know, hold up. Uh, there's some issues. And I think one of the cool things that we need to bring this up too: special effects in this film. There's really, it's, everything's practical. Yeah. Great point. It. Yep. Yeah. There's it's all no, stunts. Yeah. No cheesy green screen jungle shots and stuff like that. Everything looks like it's filmed on location. So yeah, it, it looks fantastic, and it does. It really does. Yeah. So I would definitely say ten, ten and older uh, can definitely check this out. Watch out for the crocodile scene. Yeah, it's a fun, fun movie with with a good heart. All right. So I think I wrapped it up. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, you can email us at all eighties movies podcast at gmail dot com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. Follow us on Facebook at All 80s Movies Podcast. Uh, Join us again next week as we discuss 1985's two-time Oscar winner, Witness, starring Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis. Looking forward to that one. This is Bill Bant with Jason Masek. Wishing you guys a great night. Good night. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening.